Hey everyone, it's producer Jake. If you're hearing this, then you are listening to a free preview of our weekly bonus interview. This is where we feature our series and lots of interesting one-off episodes. If you want to hear the full episode, go to our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com, and subscribe, or try our 14-day free trial. Thanks. I just have a question. So yeah. um, one of the things that we emphasized in, in the last conversation and what you just gestured toward, that this this division doesn't make political sense because the urban and rural divide is so strong between these different political regimes. I was just wondering, what did people just like the sort of partition model? You know, you have it in India, you have it in Korea, you have it in Germany, and so they just wind up applying it to Vietnam. But like, they must have been aware that, for example, the communists had control of the rural parts of the country. So was the idea that people would literally pick up and move like in, in when Pakistan was created or was there something else going on? So in terms of the, the international negotiations in Geneva, I'm much less familiar with that process. The agreement did say that civilians would get this period of free movement for about 300 days and later gets extended, that they'll get to move to whichever zone they wanted. However, the agreement also said that in two years, there was supposed to be reunification elections. So it wasn't supposed to be a permanent division. We thought that having signed the agreements, the French would now be forced by world opinion to carry out the Geneva Accords. And we strongly believe that there would be a general election held in two years. Now, among anti-communists who had basically zero say over much of this, there was great outrage. They blamed on the communists. They said the communists are so evil for dividing the country. They were also really worried, genuinely worried, about the parts of northern Vietnam that were more anti-communist. So for the most part, this division of north-south doesn't quite make so much sense because it was also a rural-urban division. However, the anti-communists were also stronger in the southern half of Vietnam than in the northern half. So it doesn't somehow reflect where the military lines were drawn, but there is some dimension of it that makes sense. Yeah, there's a reality there. Um, And this might be a question outside your purview, but I'm trying to think about the economic relationship of, you know, north to south. As someone who's studied Germany, you know, there's a, a different, you know, between Western German industrialization and sort of Eastern Prussia landowning agriculture. So, so what's going on there? Is, are, are these countries, well, like you said, they, they weren't supposed to be independent countries, but there, people must have realized on some level that like, that might happen. Um, <laughs> so could these work as an independent as independent units, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, is this cutting off Vietnam's ability to be a successful country? I think you see what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, so economically, the southern third of Vietnam has been the most dynamic economic region of Vietnam since the colonial period. That's also the region of Vietnam that has the strongest tradition of somewhat democratic politics. I say somewhat because during the colonial period, there were some elections in southern Vietnam for people who are French citizens. You don't see those same type of elections um, the same significance in other parts of the country. So there, there are things that make the su- southern third of Vietnam very unique. Certainly, I think the northern Vietnam, it wasn't as economic dynamic as southern Vietnam. Northern Vietnam also had a smaller area of um, had a larger population, higher population density, and uh, sort of the agricultural surplus was just not great. 
when I put it that way. And so the southern third of Vietnam is, has historically, you know, since like the 19th century, been the rice bat, the real rice basket of, of Vietnam. So definitely that was a big difference. And I think even then people recognize that, that the, some of the really early writings from the mid fifties describe southern Vietnam as this place of wonderful, great abundance compared to the more impoverished north. So there was certainly that, that awareness. From the very beginning. So was Ho's plan to industrialize? Is, is, is this, so he, is he following sort of the classic Marxist forced industrialization in order to basically bring about a, a fully realized communism? Is that what's going on? Yes, but I don't know. I, I can tell you the truth. I can't remember when that plan. Um, right. So this is like when that plan it, it per, it's percolating. Okay. So what's okay? So let's return to the south because that's what we're focusing on. So all right. What is the initial response? Not happy. So what, what goes? <laughs> what goes from there? So the initial response from anti-communists is definitely not happy. But at the same time, they're also very happy to, most of them are also very happy to welcome northern Vietnamese or people who are, who are currently living in northern Vietnam to come south. And a large number of did. Far, far more people from the north of Vietnam went south than people in the southern half of Vietnam went north. The refugees added to the confusion in the south, but Washington saw their value as a solid anti-communist base for Xiem and as touching symbols of the Cold War. Now, part of this reason has to do with the French, especially the Americans, providing transportation. Southerners who wanted to go north just didn't have anyone providing transportation in the same way. So the Soviet Union is not, or the People's Republic of China, is not like in, in the south, like the Americans are in the north? Yeah, not to the same degree. I mean, I think that the Soviet, the Soviets, I believe it was the 